You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. I've seen it written elsewhere that you have been referred to as the Wright Brothers of Unmanned Aerial Vehicles, so I'm really pleased to be able to speak to you about some of these developments. I think the best place to start is just, I know that you have a book out. Could one of you or both of you just give our listeners a synopsis of the book? What is it you set out to do and what's the main thing that you try to achieve? Thanks, Andrew. And and thank you to the Spy Museum for giving us this opportunity to talk about the book. It's a, it's a fantastic venue and we're, we're really excited to be here and have this discussion. Just by way of introduction on the book, we set out a number of years ago to tell the story about the team and the innovation that went into what ultimately became the, the program we're all familiar with now is Predator Hellfire and the use of drones as both intelligence and operational tools. The book was really focused on a specific period of time from late 1999 until 2003 we picked that time because it's when the core of the technology development was, one, given to us as a requirement to develop unique capabilities, technical solutions that we could use against Al-Qaeda and specifically against bin Laden in a, at that time, a denied territory of Afghanistan. And I think that one of the reasons we waited as long as we did was One, we wanted to wait until we were both completed with our government service. And then two, we actually completed the book a number of years ago, but it took about four years to get through the clearance process. But and just as to tie up that kind of overview, we were we were intent on trying to recognize the team, trying to recognize the technology, but protect what it is that is still particularly relevant from the tactics, techniques and procedures and go through the process and honor the lifelong obligations that we have for that clearance process. The only thing I would add to that is there were, while there were some high level things that were going on and we had some really good top cover because we would would not have been able to do what we did without the great top cover that we had some from some great individuals. We really focused this on the tactical level, the folks that were really getting comp- the feats accomplished not Alec and I necessarily, but there was a host of great Americans that made this happen. So this program was developed with Al-Qaeda specifically in mind? Yes. In fact, the real trigger point for it, just for a little bit of the, the history and how it came to be, was this was all highly classified until just recently declassified as a part of our process to get the book cleared. In early 2000 or late 99, there was a briefing from then director of CIA, George Tennant, to President Clinton. And also involved in that was the national security advisor at the time, Sandy Berger. President Clinton was dissatisfied with the progress that was being made against isolating and identifying in a true targetable sense where bin Laden was in, in Afghanistan. And, and again, keep in mind, no Americans on the ground at that point and really a dependency on the human intelligence that CIA was working to try and identify where is he on any given day and then 
And then what are the operational opportunities that come with that? So Sandy Berger then sent a, a memo to the Pentagon addressed to the director of operations for the joint staff. It was Admiral Fry on the Pentagon side. And on the CIA side, it went to then ADCI for collections, the, the associate director for collections, Charlie Allen. And it basically said, take Pentagon resources and and a bigger checkbook and combine that with the unique authorities that CIA had and put those two together, do do a development project and we want uh, and this was this was the the real hook to the thing was we want actionable intelligence on bin laden in nine months or less so we received that memo in january of 2000 and charlie allen and, and admiral fry kicked it off from the defense department perspective and the cia perspective wow so just to give our listeners some context, like in the run-up to this, there's the 1996 and 1998 fatwas against the United States. Then there's the embassy bombings in 98, and then USS Cole comes not long after this in 2000. And then, of course, we have 9-11. But the bare essentials of the program are already underway before 9-11 happens. Yeah, very, very significantly. In fact, we conducted operations in Afghanistan, over Afghanistan in 2000. And that was with that end state of the actionable intelligence piece. And very much so, the, the U.S. government was was focused at that point in time on the response aspects to the East Africa embassy bombings in 98, and really a superficial kind of outcome from that. And and knowing that if, if we truly were going to have an impact on al-Qaeda and bin Laden, we needed to do it at the key leadership level. This is referring to Tarnak Farms, where Al-Qaeda was set up? Well, yes and no. From our perspective, from the intelligence collection perspective, and, and my role at CIA at the time, we were watching better than a dozen facilities. But we were doing so with what we could collect from still images off of satellites and the impact of, of that type of collection being a snapshot in time and really hard to discern whether that was able to confirm or refute what we were getting from our human intelligence. But Tarnak Farm was certainly a cornerstone to that collection deck. And in fact, after watching it through through satellite imagery for, for several years, the day we were able to show up overhead, sit there in color, and as long as, frankly, as long as we wanted to, to sit there and watch and develop those patterns of life, see what the activity was on the ground. And we were able to do all that in 2000. And Mark, from a technical perspective on how we on how we got there and the platform collection capabilities, you want to put that in? And Mark, you wanted to add something? I mean, you first have to look at really unprecedented. I mean, Alec and uh, on his side, they had to find a place for us to operate from. I and most of the people on our team had done operations in Bosnia and the Balkans, and we were not going to be as far away from the target as we were in this situation. So we first had to develop a capability to operate from thousands of miles away and have the target hundreds of miles away from our launch location. So that was the first challenge. We had some challenges. We were going to operate alone and unafraid with our platform. And, and while the Taliban did not have a robust air defense system, they did have an air defense system. They had radars that could detect us. They had surface air missiles that could shoot us down and they had aircraft that could shoot us down. And we were supposed to avoid detection and certainly avoid being shot down to get over the areas that Alec needed us to. So we had to develop some really new tactics, techniques, and procedures to do that. We had to develop some technologies that we hadn't done in the Predator program before. So there were, within that nine months that Alec talks about, there were some huge undertakings just to get us to that point to where in September of 2000, we could be over Tarnak Farms. Wow. And I think that that's an important point to put in that there was this capability that the Taliban had at the time. I guess one of the images that many people have is just a bunch of guys walking around with AK-47s and this their sophistication kind of really ends there, but it doesn't. I think it would be interesting just to set the scene. Tell us what you were both doing around this time. So you mentioned your role at CIA, Alec. Give us an idea of what you were both doing and how you first met and how you began to work together. 
probably three months prior to meeting Alec, I was actually at an airfield, uh, Indian Springs Airfield, now Creek Air Force Base, north of Las Vegas. And I had been the operations officer for kind of the fledgling uh, predator program that we had. We had two small squadrons at the time. We were operating over the Balkans. We had done one of the squadrons had done a tour in uh, southern Iraq. So I had left that and I was now just a staff officer in the Pentagon doing what staff majors do in the Pentagon, doing paperwork and stuff. And and I got pulled away and said, you're dropping everything that you're doing and you're going to go do this special program. And probably that same day or the next day, I found myself meeting the other young man that you have on the call here. And I think my career changed forever at that meeting. You were U.S. Air Force, Mark? Yeah, yeah. yeah U.S. Air Force. And you were an intelligence, intelligence officer. officer? Yep, for sure. Okay. And you had some background in this, and that's why you were chosen? Yes, I was. I had the background, and frankly, I was the only person at the Pentagon at the time that had that background. So there was some chance involved as well. For me at that point in time, and so we'll call it late 1999, I'm, I'm working at CIA. I'm inside the, the bin Laden station, which was at the time a fairly small group of dedicated individuals, uh, really, really working the, the bin Laden and the broader Al-Qaeda target on a global basis. And it was a virtual station as opposed to the, the ones that we're more traditionally referring to in, in the geographic sense. So we had global responsibilities and and the the subgroup within the within the station that I was that I was working was really the where's bin Laden on a day to day basis. We had a couple of networks of individuals that were on the ground, all Afghans, and we were we were collecting that data, processing that data, working with some of our liaison partners, trying to validate and tighten that intelligence picture on bin Laden and Al Qaeda and. And frankly, when that when the memo I mentioned earlier came through from Sandy Berger to Charlie Allen, he then reached to the head of the counterterrorism center, who was Kofor Black, and said, I need support for this from CTC, counterterrorism center. And Kofor, I like to think it was because I was the right man for the job, but I, I, I think in, in all honesty, I was... It, within the Bin Laden station, I had you know some of the better or more recent Pentagon experience as having worked for the Army and been at the Pentagon just before that. Uh, I had a rudimentary understanding of the technology development process at, at the, on the Pentagon side, and, and I, I like to joke that I was just walking down the hall and failed to duck when <laughs> Kofa was looking for somebody to tag for this, you know, so went up. You know, got my introductions to to Charlie Allen, which he's a phenomenal American, and and he was just passionately pounding on his desk saying, "We're going to do this. This is a great opportunity." And then he put all of us in the room together. Initially, and while Predator and and Hellfire were two significant outputs because of that memo, there were there were other there were other efforts and initiatives that came out of this uh, this process as well. But those are by far the most well proliferated at this point in time. And Charlie gave me enough rope to to go out there and try not to hang myself. And Kofor did the same. CIA is a, a different organization from what I was used to on the DOD side. And rather than asking permission for, I need to go talk to General Atomics or I need to go talk to the Air Force, it was just go do it and, and move forward and tell us what you need. So the top cover, the support was excellent. And we pulled together a team the best way to be successful is to surround yourself with really smart people and empower them to do their to do their jobs. And so we had a great small contractor team, mostly, and some staff officers from CIA that was the core of this from an agency perspective. Just to be clear, Alex Station was stationed within the Counterterrorism Center. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. No relationship to to me and my name. It was it was named before <laughs> I got there. <laughs> I'm sure you get that quite a lot. I want to go on to discuss drones and the different types of unmanned aerial vehicles and so forth. But before we get there, I just wonder the title of your book, Renegades, Rule Breakers, talking about barriers. I guess it's just for our listeners, it sounds like when they read the title of your book, it sounds like you were market disruptors, you were going against the grain and 
there was kind of pushback and resistance that you had to either evade or overcome, but you also had top cover. So help us understand that, I guess, sort of bureaucratic institutional process. Help us understand that kind of going against the grain and some of the resistance that you may or may not have faced along the way. Well, I think the best illustrating, Alec may or may not agree with me, was really the bringing on the hellfire after we had been successful. The Air Force was going down that road, but it was going to be multi-year program, multi-millions of dollars. And the leadership that we had, uh, I remember being in Mr. Snake Clark's office, who was uh, one of those key leaders in the right location, who told me, no, the slide needs to say 60 days and 495K, because that's what I can get through the system. We'll figure out what it's going to be. And we were actually not too much too far off that, but that's what we did. And so it was that was kind of violating the rules, right? And you were you were speeding and really no one in the operational chain of the Pentagon was up for putting hellfires on predators. There was General Jumper that was at Air Combat Command was, but many of the people we had to work with were like, Why do we need to do this? This is not an Air Force thing, et cetera. So we said, Fine, we'll just do it ourselves and worked with some great uh, individuals within the big safari program office, which was a specialized acquisition element within the Air Force who got with the contractors and, and made it happen so that we could have an operational capability. So that's just one example. I'm sure Alex got others as well. I agree with Mark. I think we were focused when we went to Hellfire on, we really didn't, we stopped caring as much about the pushback and the barriers that we were hitting and we were even more driven than than before. But I would go back and I'd say, even from the foundation of this, Sandy Berger telling CIA, you're going to do this. You, CIA, are going to do a technology program or a series of technology programs to an organization that is by history and, and definition, a human intelligence collection capability. And, and that became, that was put on the table numerous times in the first couple of days and weeks as we were brainstorming this and, and trying to put the team and the technologies together is that we're not an aircraft organization. We're not an operationalizing aircraft and using technologies as our intelligence driver organization. And and while true in practice, I don't believe that that was really the intent for, for CIA. I believe CIA's job was was to collect that intelligence and inform policy. And so to, from, from my perspective, not as a career CIA officer, you know, I was late in my career when I went there. I didn't have that institutional bias. I hadn't been brought up that way. It was more of a I'm not afraid to go to the Pentagon and ask for help. I'm not afraid to go to NSA and ask for help. And I'd also offer that as a young, naive, inexperienced officer at CIA at that point, I didn't know it was supposed to be hard. <laughs> and if you ask my parents, they, they'd say they, they could see that renegade, you know, long before, uh, long before I was at CIA. But we, Mark's personality, my personality, we're, we're very much predisposed to we're going to do the right thing. We very rarely, and we talked about it a number of times, but we very rarely put our career ambitions at the forefront of our decision-making. It was what's the right thing to do and taking care of the, the people that we had on our team. Just briefly, the other aspect of just to illustrate the breaking the mold and being a market disruptor, full motion video was really not being done by the broader intelligence community, at least in a tactical sense, Mark and his, and his Air Force teams were doing it. But now NGA, then NEMA, chartered for doing imagery exploitation. They weren't doing it from, they weren't doing it in full motion video. And it's the satellite images I had talked about before to now having, giving the analyst control through Mark and his operators. But if an analyst said, hey, I want to look at the east side of that building and not the west side of the building, you don't have to wait for you know the next satellite pass. You can tell the pilot, turn the aircraft. So that dynamic tool for the analysts was really new. And we went through some learning pains on, on how to use it. We struggled with, is this an operational tool? Is this a tactical tool? Is this a, a strategic tool? And And I think the answer for us was yes. And we tried to 
stay out of being pigeonholed into into one lane. I think whether it was we were too young and naive at the time or whatever, any anything that was asked to us to include, hey, we want you to take this ungainly small airplane that always has been flying with other support assets and we want you to operate it from thousands of miles away alone by itself, figure out how to get it in and get it over where Alec and his analysts need it to be. And we were like, okay, we can do that. We weren't sure quite how the time and we had to, we had to get the technical people and then our operators on thinking innovatively how to do it. But we, we never questioned that, that we, we never thought we couldn't get it done. I was wondering as well, Alec, what was your background in the CIA? Were you analysis, operations, science and technology? Yeah, definitely not the science and technology. I had started in the Army as a counterintelligence special agent doing espionage investigations in the late 80s and spent some time on the Hill learning how sausage was made in the on the Senate Armed Services Committee working for Strom Thurmond in the mid-90s. And I was at the Pentagon working for the J-2 and, and the J-3, the, the Director of Operations, Director of Intelligence, as a Defense Intelligence Agency analyst when I was detailed as a, I was a detailee then to CIA. But as an intelligence professional, CIA was the pinnacle on the, on the collection side for, for somebody that was human focused. So once I got there, I stayed transitioned to be a, a staff officer and I was, I was trained as a case officer. So definitely not the S&T side. I had some analytical background and I had some operational background. And there were many meetings with the engineering side of things and some of the people that Mark put in the room with me that, you know, frankly, I, had, I couldn't keep up. But it sounded compelling and convincing. And, you know, we had to trust the guys that were put in front of us. So tell us just a little bit more about your background as well, Mark. You had joined up to be a career Air Force intelligence officer. I signed up probably 15 years before this. I went to officer training school and then uh, started my career in intelligence. Most of my background before that had been in, at the tactical level in, uh, in fighter units, actually. Gone to multiple fighter units, had gone to the Air Force Weapons School, and then found myself just prior to this, they wanted to get some people with that kind of background into the Predator program as it was growing. So I had shown up and became a sensor operator and then got lucky to be the operations officer for one of the squadrons. And then, as I said before, we got pulled to do staff. So yeah, intelligence, mostly at the tactical level. And here I am doing a covert operation. <laughs> and I think it would be really good now just to break unmanned aerial vehicles, drones down for our listeners. One of the things that I love about our podcast is that the listeners range from the person working the account at Langley or the Pentagon through to just a person on the street that loves a good spy story. So I just want to kind of break everything down for them. So unmanned aerial vehicles, what was the state of the field when both of you met? Where was the technology? Where was everything? And how did you guys manage to push it forward? Just break that down for us a little bit. I guess I'll take a shot. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago, so there were some handheld entities that were out there, but not to the level that we have today. There were some fledgling capabilities within the military on the U.S. side, Pioneer, and there were some capabilities that go on years before, but when the budget crunches hit, those capabilities dropped. And for the Air Force, that Predator program with its 47-foot wingspan or whatever was fairly new. We had really jumped into it in 1996 and had got pushed to using it into the Balkans. Uh, we had a satellite capability so we could go beyond line of sight. And so that was probably the largest capability we had. The agency had some fledgling capability. I'll let Alec talk about those. But we were on the very rudimentary edge of certainly we couldn't have envisioned what we have today back in that time period. And, and so there were... The proliferation, the ability to put as many up at the time was nowhere near. I mean, when you look at our program, we in 2000, we could operate one at a time. That presented us some challenges as well, but nothing to where you have it today with HD cameras and signals intelligence sensors and weapons 
and thousands of miles away uh, was not anywhere on the horizon when we really started this program. So there were unmanned aerial vehicles then, but there they never had anything approaching the suite of capabilities that are now right. housed in one. Is that what you're saying? Right. I, I mean, we had in the Balkans, as an example, we had supported guys, folks on the ground. We couldn't actually talk to them on the ground with a radio like uh, we would be able to do eventually. So we had a cumbersome command and control process. We could see what was going on the ground. We watched sometimes, and we had actually started some of the counter CT stuff. We really didn't know it at the time, but following some of the adversaries in the Balkans because of our first taste of this counterterrorism. From the agency side, the presence of drones or the, the status of drones or unmanned systems, unmanned aerial vehicles was, we had some capability, but it was at best, we were using it the same way that the Air Force was as a, a loitering observation platform, collecting some intelligence with it. We did the same thing with some, with some manned aircraft, obviously. But for me, when we sat down and ran through our, our planning assumptions after receiving the memo I, I talked about, when drones came up or unmanned aerial vehicles came up as a an option, it was out of necessity because we knew we weren't going to be able to put manned aircraft over Afghanistan. The Pentagon would not allow us to put manned aircraft over Afghanistan because landlocked country, no combat search and rescue capability to reasonably be able to recover a downed pilot and, a, and an uncertainty. Not that we were particularly intimidated by the Taliban's air defense capability at the time, relative to the U.S.'s, but there was enough concern that we don't need the negativity of a U.S. pilot being held in Afghanistan. So drones became kind of, we were kind of forced to it. And my only awareness of them to that point was I had done a, a number of liaison meetings with the Israelis years before and seen what they were doing with drones against Hezbollah in Lebanon and it was just, it was necessity as a mother of invention. And they did some amazing, amazing things, you know, accrued by today's standards. But it at least lit that fire that, yeah, this is doable for places you can't get people on the ground and you can't handle the risks of putting manned aircraft over that terrain. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Help us understand how this type of technological breakthrough takes place. So we mentioned the CIA and the Air Force. Are both of them trying to tunnel towards the castle and they're they're taking different routes or do they both know that they're doing the same thing? Or like how does that coordination take place? Who was developing at first? Was this the Air Force and then the CIA said we can see some use for it or or were they, was it a joint track type thing? Like, Help us understand how that whole technological development process shakes out at the ground level. I think before Mark and I met and, and the team started getting put together, the CIA's drone capabilities were following the Air Force, not really a parallel development, but it was a useful tool to have in the inventory. But it was very crude even by the Air Forces, by comparison to the Air Force at that point in time. But when Mark and I were put together and our team was put together and we started working against the constraints that we were given, we worked in parallel. I'd tell Mark, you know, how many people does it take to operate a, a deployed predator element? And the answer came back with like 100, 110 
and from the CIA perspective, when you're trying to operate a clandestine capability, that's a lot of people. So our position was, okay, well, we need to do it with eight to 10. And that then took the Air Force down the path of how the heck are we going to do this with eight to 10 people? So I think in that piece, to your question, we were driving the requirement for the operational scenarios that we had and Mark and the the Air Force and other elements of the Intel community, frankly, had to figure out how to how to do that. And Mark, from your perspective, how to you know, being at remote split ops was was developed out of that. You can't have a hundred people on the ground. How are you going to handle that? I mean, when you look at some of the technological advances that we did, it was it was out of necessity. It started with the president saying you need to do more to the constraints that we got for political and otherwise to operate from outside of the country that we, outside of Afghanistan as a launch place. And we had to do it with a small team, as Alec mentioned. So from once we got into the Hellfire, then we had to operate from the continental United States that added in the remote split ops that Alec. So that plus the signals intelligence capability that we came on and several other capabilities were born out of those operational needs that we had. And if we hadn't had those requirements from from the agency, the Air Force, I don't believe would have, we might have armed them eventually, but we would have, it would have been a long time before we operated them from uh, the continental United States and added on uh, signals intelligence as an example. I had been at the unit and I remember seeing briefings that said, you will never be able to do that off of this platform. And we figured out a way to do it. So it was really those operational constraints that drove a lot of the technological innovation that we had. Just for our listeners as well, both of you were there leading it and managing the project. You're you're not in the garage tinkering around trying to come up with stuff type people. You're You're both more leaders and managers. Is that correct? From an agency perspective, Mark and his People never let me too close to an aircraft or any of the controls, with the exception of the monkey switch, which is covered <laughs> covered in the book. But uh, outside of that, yes, there was a there was a strong desire to keep us away from breaking any of the uh, the technology. So we were working, you know, from my perspective on the managerial side and the the team building and organizing and innovating. From how are we going to use this tool when Mark and his folks get it put together? As Alex said before, we surrounded ourselves with very smart people on the technical side, especially. So you had General Atomics and L3 and other contractors that were really the technical folks. We have some other people we call out in our book that were very smart. Uh, We had some calm people that lashed it all together. Paul Welch is mentioned in the book as an example. And certainly while we were leaders, we were leaders at the lowest levels. So we had some great uh, leaders above us that gave us the top cover that needed to allow us freedom of maneuver to uh, make the things happen that needed to happen. So we were very lucky. Just on the genesis of unmanned aerial vehicles, um, most of this technological development came from the government. It wasn't in the private sector. Is that correct? Well, you had groups like General Atomics, manufacturer of the Predator, that had capitalized on some designs and some architectures on the on the commercial side but the requirements for the evolution of of drones and and certainly as intelligence platforms was was driven by the government side but i think you had on the industry side or on the commercial side we used to call them remote control airplanes and you go out on the weekend and play around with them there were innovations there where people would try to attach cameras and take pictures and drop things from them, but mostly from sport and hobbyist type perspective. For our listeners, again, just help us understand a little bit more the whole landscape of drones. So how high are they are they flying? One of the questions that I often get is why do we need aircraft or drones anymore? Can't satellites just do everything? Some of these questions may seem stupid to specialists, but help them understand imagery intelligence seemed to be the initial thing that it could do because it was like a flying loitering camera or fly on the wall. And then, Mark, you spoke about SIGIN and then a range of other capabilities get fused into the unmanned aerial vehicle. But 
help our listeners understand a little bit more yeah some of those technical tactical aspects like how high they're flying what they can capture why do we need satellites all that kind of stuff i'll take a shot i'll speak to the capability we brought to bear in this program the predator was uniquely able to uh we normally flew from 19 to 21,000 feet above mean sea level. Normally, based on the camera and what you wanted to see, you would fly it three to five miles from the whatever you were looking at. We had a mix of electro-optic and infrared cameras. And what we could do different in the satellite is, Alec mentioned, if, if he wanted to see the other side of the building, a satellite, you can't maneuver that way. I can just orbit right around and, and get him that other side. I can, if somebody gets in a vehicle and drives away from that, I can easily follow that vehicle wherever it goes. And I can do that for hours. I could, depending on how far we were, I could give them several hours over the target and move from target to target at his will, depending on how far apart they were. So that was the unique capability that we provided, that unblinking eye, if you will, that stare and that ability to maneuver where he wanted us to go that you really can't get with the, uh, the satellite technology we had at the time. And I would add to that the being able to confirm intelligence from other sources, phenomenal capability. You know, when the human asset says there's a person at this location and this location is described as you know a two-story building with a brown gate and a creek that runs through it. You can task your aircraft, your drone, to go visualize that and confirm its actual existence in the presence of activity or absence of activity. That's something you're not going to do with a lot of other platforms, especially in dangerous or, or denied areas, which was, was certainly our premise at the time. Drones now encompass everything from from predators and, and larger systems to small handheld systems that uh, you can pull out of your pocket and fly around the room that you're within. You know, things that from a novice's perspective, you'd say it's a, it's a toy and it's a hobby type capability, but for law enforcement, for fire rescue search capabilities, the application in you know a broader government context separated out from DOD the ability to fly over forest fires the ability to put a drone into a, a house where there's a hostage situation or somebody's barricaded to know what you're going against or to know what's over the next hill or around the next turn with something that isn't going to have a lethal consequence to it if it's discovered or if it crashes or uh, or somebody shoots at it so the evolution of drone capabilities, it's really left to the imagination of the, of the user. You know, people are flying them over crops, looking for diseased areas and, and massive farming communities. And so uh, using it for hunting and fishing, you know, although it takes some of the sport out of it, you're creating a capability to see farther and, and hear farther. And we're watching the industry very carefully. Both of our current companies and, and work have you know touched the drone communities and the evolution thereof, both on the commercial side, the investment side, and certainly the, the defense and intelligence side. There's just so many different ways that it can be used and every technology can be used for good purposes or for less good purposes. And I remember reading an article in the newspaper not long ago about how some pedophiles were using drones to try to see kids in a pool and those sorts of things. But I was also thinking, can you imagine if Washington, Grant, or Patton could have a drone? <laughs> they would be like, yes. <laughs> I mean, it would, really be a game, it would really be a game changer, wouldn't it? So help us understand the build-out of those capabilities. So if I'm getting this correct, it starts off with imagery intelligence, photographic intelligence, and then you mentioned signals and and then it begins to have offensive capabilities. It help us understand that. So you've got drone 1.0, and then you've got 2 and 3 and 4. Help us understand how that gets built out. I'm going to put Mark on the spot and tell him to uh, share the uh, Roberts Ridge story or vignette, because I think you see in that the development out of necessity that we've talked about, how the signals intelligence folds in, and now 
really for for the first time that I, I can think of right now, you're talking to troops in contact, troops on the ground, providing just life-saving support in a dire set of circumstances. And that vignette will give you a, a great overlay for the layering of imagery and SIGINT and comms. I'll take a step back to get us there, but we started with the ability to put the predator overhead of the various targets with a, an electro-optic and infrared sensors. We got eyes on uh, bin Laden, but then we the capability to take action on that was an exercise from offboard. And so that's where we started down the realm of, well, let's do it ourselves and come up with a capability to be able to finish the target that we had found. And that's what drove us to the weaponization of the Hellfire piece. The signals intelligence piece came about from, as I mentioned in 2000, we uh, had to get through the air defenses for the Taliban. We found ourselves in situations where we knew that they had found us from some offboard capabilities, and we can't get into those much well, but we knew there were some limitations to those capabilities, and we built a rudimentary ability just based on a new involvement or new evolution in Predator. We actually put a radio on board, and at the time, we weren't going to have to talk to other friendly forces in the area, so we converted that to the ability to listen to the bad guy frequencies on their radios, and that's what born the rudimentary signals and intelligence capability that now has exploded within the intelligence community that we really can't discuss much here. But we started down that, and that really culminated in uh, bringing all those capabilities together, came about on what's Roberts Ridge when the uh, during an Operation Anaconda, where the helicopters were downed and we were found ourselves in close proximity and uh, came on to help and stayed over top of that situation for the entire time when that quick reaction force helicopter was down, used all the capabilities we had to not just bring our own Hellfires to bear, but called in other aircraft, buddy lazed, so actually used our laser capability that we brought on to spot for their weapons to include other allies to make sure that the survivors from that helicopter crash that were still alive could get off that mountain, and they did. And Operation Anaconda, this is 2002? Yes, March of 2002. I mean, it was an operation to try to to root out the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, associated Al-Qaeda in the mountains of eastern Afghanistan. We weren't really supposed to be part of that operation, but we found ourselves operating against the, or actually collecting on the Al-Qaeda targets that the agency had tasked us for that day and found ourselves within a few miles of where the quick reaction force helicopters were downed. I can even see, and maybe this is something they are used for, but massing, fissing, looking for chemical signatures. Yeah, the applications are just across the whole range of intelligence, really, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've seen them look at some of those things. You could, I could see some applications where you have a chemical situation and you could fly this with a myriad of sensors to, that you don't want to put people in harm's way. So you've got this ability to send this or surrogates off of this out there. And certainly we've taken that soda straw electro-optic capability and now we can actually look at wide areas or put multiple sensors on board to give a much broader view of the battle space than we were able to do on our systems. Wow. One of the early applications post our involvement was it was flown, not Predator, but other systems were flown into Fukushima during the nuclear incident there to detect the radiation. And and really, the term that was used at the time was drones are good for dull, dirty, or dangerous missions. Do you need somebody to be able to fly persistently for hours and hours on end? collecting on a, a target, and that checks the dull box. Dirty, flying through radiated environments or, or chemically uncertain environments for that air sampling piece, uh, certainly the dirty side, and, and then flying in, in contested environments, such as what we were dealing with in Afghanistan, covered the dangerous piece. I was just thinking when Mark was talking there, a drone been able to cap- 
pick up chemical signatures is better than being the most junior ranked person and being told that you're the one that has to lift their gas mask up. <laughs> the canary in the coal mine, absolutely. <laughs> Help us understand how they're powered. And could you see a development? We have here at the Spy Museum the Bushnell Turtle, which is like a proto-submarine from the Revolutionary War. And that could go underwater for 20 minutes maximum. And now nuclear submarines can go underwater for longer than human beings can do without fresh food and vegetables. So it's increased exponentially. Is it Would it be possible to get a nuclear-powered drone that was in the air for a year? There are, and Mark can cover the Air Force side of it, see where, where things are going there. But from Predator's perspective, back in the days that we were dealing with it, it was an aircraft engine, albeit a small one. It sounded like a lawnmower plowing slowly through the sky, but a standard fueled aircraft engine, which there are now, there are electric capabilities and, and smaller platforms generally. And there are, there are solar capabilities in some platforms. There's great science and, and experimentation going on with exactly what you're thinking. How, can we power a longer duration, you know, and how do you want to define long? But there's been efforts for, for a number of years to put higher altitude, long endurance platforms that have a solar component, uh, that have a rechargeable battery. Uh, so you're charging it during your daylight hours and then living off of that battery for your nighttime hours and theoretically staying, staying in orbit indefinitely until you have, you know, mechanical failure at some level or, or need to swap out some other subsystem. But you know, those evolutions are in aircraft development. It's all about size, weight, and power and how you balance those pieces. And I think you're going to see phenomenal increases in endurance and powering capabilities over the, over the coming years. It's like speed armor, firepower for tanks. There's always yeah. a trade-off between the three of those. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. For these drones as well, during the war on terror, they would read about the CIA's drone program and then they would read about the militaries. Um, what are some of those differences? How does that coordination take place and what are the differences between both programs? I would offer just to start that discussion that one of the reasons it took us four years to get our, our book published was that very issue that as the as your citizens are are reading newspapers and listening to, to news reports, the CIA was not interested in having any attribution that they had a drone program. And that was one of the things we pushed for and kind of represented it as one of the worst kept secrets in Washington, that the CIA was flying drones. And the first response we got in trying to get the book cleared was the very premise of you know a CIA-related drone program was highly classified. And, and we spent a long time working through that to get to the point where that, that was an acknowledged capability. So you do see, and now being on the largely on the civilian side of it, I watch the news reports and, and sometimes you got a, it's a military capability. It's a, it's an intelligence capability. You, you just, you don't know in a lot of cases, but I would say the, probably the preponderance of drones involved at, in the intelligence and operational aspects at this point are, are, are military but that's not always easy to discern those differences. And you can dig pretty deep into the what organizations have what authorities and where are you using Title 10 or where are you using Title 50, you know, legal authorities. And is it a declared war environment? Is it a, an intelligence collection, uh, a more clandestine type of mission? I would just add, just from my military experience after this program, and, and a lot of it had to do with the unmanned aircraft there's always the struggle of finding targets and striking targets. In the past, we had intelligence platforms and capabilities to find them, and then we'd hand off coordinates or a, an image or whatever, and a fighter or bomber would go strike those targets. Once we brought this together, it, it now bore a, a natural friction over finding targets, killing targets. How do you do that? Who's got the priority for the thing? And the interesting part, even within the military, it takes you hours, days, sometimes weeks to fix that target, to establish that is a valid military target and only minutes to strike it. So we in the military have a constant struggle between 
Is it an intelligence platform? Is it a attack platform? And we showed in our capability, and I was an advocate all the time, it's the commander's capability. The commander will decide how he utilizes it. Same with our program. You know, we had the commander in chief that said, go do this. And we figured out how to do both things, find the targets, fix them, and then finish them. It seems to me that the way that they're both used could have different implications. And Alex suggested some of them. Like, I guess if it's like a denied area in a third party country that you're not at war with, then if a CIA drone goes in, then you can argue, well, this is just like clandestine collection, but a bit different and a bit more modern. But if it's the the Air Force, like, say it's a drone with USAF on the side and it goes down. If the Air Force is using it, then this is like hostility. This is like war. There's different implications on who's using the drones in certain regions, right? And a lot of that was, a lot of the debate was born out of, you know, now that this capability is there, what is it? In fact, you know, when the when the Russians, you know, learned that we were, developing our capability, they issued a, a diplomatic demarche saying that we were violating uh, cruise missile treaties by creating a weaponized, steerable, long-range platform. The debate was, you know, followed the development and it's now what do we do with this? What do we call it? And is it a weapon of war? Is it an intelligence tool? You know, in a lot of cases, it can be a humanitarian tool too. The data that's provided by it, as Mark says, you know, it's really the commander's tool. What is their mission? What is their intent? And and how do you want to discern it? But yeah, a predator found on the ground somewhere, it's, it's going to be hard to discern who owned it unless you want to start looking at the markings on it and, and try to figure out who put it there. Help us understand how much this technology has emanated out to other countries. Has any of the research or the technology been exfiltrated by... Chinese or Russian intelligence agencies? What are the states of their drone programs? Or do they have one? How many countries have one? Do you have to be a sort of pretty affluent country to have it? Or, yeah, help us understand just the kind of drone landscape, because obviously the United States was was leading the way and was the front runner. But help us understand how much it managed to hold on to that technology and that capability and how much it's kind of radiated out. I would offer that we evolved the technology. You know, like I said, the, the to me, the Israelis really pioneered a lot of the capability. And today, you know, there's some great open source researches where you can pull up a map of every country that's got a drone capability, and every country has got a weaponized drone capability, and it's it's out there uh, extensively. You know, we tried to. We knew we were going to lose aircraft in our case, and we knew it was only a matter of time before they wound up in, in China or elsewhere to be exploited or reverse engineered. And in fact, that, you know, that certainly did happen. And there were, there were policy level decisions about how sensitive is this technology? How hard do we have to protect it? Or are we overprotecting it to the point that we're afraid to use it? And that was the one thing I liked about what I what I observed of of the, how the Israelis were using theirs in the in the 80s was they weren't afraid to lose it and they kept them cheap and expendable to support that as well. But you've seen some of the more recent incidents in Syria. You've seen ISIS elements using weaponized drones. Now they're very very crude, but it's hanging a hand grenade underneath a drone that you can buy on Amazon or out of a consumer electronics venue or market. I'm not tagging Amazon. It's that innovation of, you know, they're easy to fly. Now the, the technology, the autopilot, so forth, make them almost indestructible. And then it's, you know, what can you carry underneath it and how do you release it? So, so there's a very crude capabilities, but yes, our near peer adversaries have equal capabilities in, in a lot of regards. And, and it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a version of an arms race of it unto itself. There are a lot of countries that for their own. A lot of them were reverse engineered from ours. I will say the U.S. government at the, at the policy and uh, lawmaking uh, really struggled with how much to export either through foreign material sales or open up the commercial and allowing some of those technologies. So it's been a challenge, but we also know that other countries are beating us to the punch to the, to the business 
in that regard. So it's weighed heavily on America on how to properly proliferate it and what to hold from our adversary. I guess they have disrupted the market of intelligence and warfare, right? Um, there was a particular paradigm that people were working within and and it's changed in it. And the the bureaucratic structures and the rules of international relations haven't necessarily kept pace with some of the things that are happening. But I guess my question is, do you ever think about that, about the kind of paradigm shift that drones brought in and all of the ethical and moral and normative questions that they generate about intelligence and war and the state of, the state of human beings yeah i was just wondering if you if that was something that you had thought about for me personally i i mean the technology and everything is one thing i would say this from a military officer standpoint when it comes to using it in an armed capability we spend a, a huge amount of effort in vetting those targets trying to discern civilians from those and and we've had errors for sure but we spend hours deciding before an, a target is actually struck so i i'm comfortable at least with the u.s military and how we uh how we prosecute in the u.s government as a whole goes about the legal aspects of of that certainly you're more apt you know there's a, also a thing to look at you're more apt to put it in harm's way than you would a human but i'm comfortable from that standpoint at least with in my experiences and i think at the time we had a singular focus and at least i didn't i didn't look 20 years or further down the road as to what that evolution would be whether this was a a one trick pony or a or a change in in how how wars are prosecuted. But I do think that from our perspective and, and working working at when we did and how we did, the diligence that went into the decision-making, the painstaking processes that we put into place were extremely relevant. And yes, admittedly imperfect, they've certainly evolved over the years, but it's a massive responsibility to have that capability and have zero vulnerability for yourself, yet the ability to project that kind of power and not something to be taken lightly. And I would say that one of the things that is a current issue is how much automation do you give drones? How much artificial intelligence do you put on the aircraft or into the systems? And can you literally remove the human decision-making from this process. And that's a, that's a scary place to be. And, and hopefully it gets rigorous debate because the consequences are, are substantial. And personally, I think, I think you can't take the, the human factor out of that. You can't take the moral and ethical aspects and, and entrust that to a, uh, to a machine. At least I, I haven't evolved to, to be comfortable with that. And they're just such fascinating issues, right? And they're really thorny moral questions as you said if you're invulnerable but you can project this military force that something different because a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot they were vulnerable and in harm's way but you know i guess it kind of disconnects that and and i guess automation or uh, artificial intelligence would decouple it yet further so yeah, it's going to be a a scary and crazy brave new world that we're I think we're already in it. We are we are indeed. Like I said, I I hope there's good good debate on it. We don't necessarily need to fight fair, but but we do need to be we'll lead with the technology and and happy to to do that and protect our our people. We just we need to be we need to keep the human dynamic in the in that decision making loop. Wow, this is so fascinating, and it's such a it's such a bridge from a lot of our collection looks at the Cold War and then obviously you have the period between the Cold War 9-11 and, and then the War on Terror, but this drone technology really is a bridge into a future that we're still kind of grasping at the moment and I think it's really, really fascinating. So I'm so glad that I was able to speak to two people that were important actors at the creation of all of this. So thanks ever so much for your time. Well, thank you. Appreciate your time. And, and thanks to the SpyCast audience and, and the Spy Museum for putting it together. Thanks definitely for the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now. 